We're going to get started. We're going to get started. Um, I'm Ann Hepperman, founder of the Sarah Awards, and I also uh, am a producer with Pineapple Street Media. Um, I started making radio pieces all the way back in 1999, uh, but mainly doing documentary features and reporting. And uh, I'm Ellen Horn. I am a producer at Audible, and before that I was at Radiolab for 13 years. So throughout both of our careers, Anne and I have done things that, uh, in our work that incorporated techniques that are commonly associated with fiction. We've worked with actors, we've uh, used sound effects and created imaginary landscapes, things that blurred the lines a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we are both big believers that there's this like enormous untapped potential for audio fiction, but you may have kind of an outdated sense of what audio fiction is. Mm. It's been raining like this for four days straight. No sign of any let up. You know what that means, Ma? What? A flood, that's what. A flood? No. (laughs) So, I mean, you still hear a lot of stuff like that today in truth, but um, unfortunately, uh, I think the image of like the radio play with a lot of overacting keeps a lot of us from stepping over the line, the, the strictly non-journalism line into like a more creative space. And so we're here to like tempt you over to the dark side. Like, come on, there's actually interesting things over here and there's things that are worth spending your time on and we're interested in what the things that haven't yet been made. So, uh, so that's what we're gonna try and do is play you some stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so we're going to give you some concrete example examples of stuff that inspires us. Uh, talk, and you'll hear, talk to the people who made those things. You'll hear from them, give you some tips, things to think about. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Yay! <laughs> First lesson is we're going to talk about how you can make amazing fiction by harnessing the untapped potential of what Hilary Frank calls the tape graveyard. Oh my god, and like my tape graveyard. It it makes me feel like <laughs> crying every time I think about it. I have so much so much good tape in my tape graveyard that I can't use cuz I never got the other side of the story. So that is Hillary Frank. She's the host of The Longest Shortest Time. She's also uh, a YA fiction author. Um, So we're going to play a piece uh, called Unless We Showed Up in Hazmat Suits, Uh, but I want to give you a backstory of how her fiction piece came to be. So one day Hillary was having lunch with a very dear friend, and the friend told Hillary that she was pregnant. And Hillary was surprised because her friend had cystic fibrosis and didn't think that it was in the cards for her, so um, they got to talking. And I asked her, do you know other people who have cystic fibrosis and have had children? And she said, well, you know, the thing is, I can't meet anyone with cystic fibrosis in real life. Like, I can't meet them in person because we could pass these germs on to each other and it could be lethal. And Hillary's friend told her that the way that she dealt with this isolation was that she would go into um, online chat rooms and talk to other people who had cystic fibrosis. And there she had actually met a woman uh, with CF who was also pregnant. 
And Hillary thought that this relationship between uh, these two women would make a really fantastic short documentary piece. Uh, she asked her friend if she could do the story. Her friend agreed, interviewed her, and then she went to go talk to the uh, woman the, who she had met in the online chat room. And the friend at first seemed into it, and she was into it, and then she was less into it. And then she was really like, I really, I really can't deal with talking about this publicly, the friend. Um, she was like, I, I'm pregnant and have CF and um, yeah. my, my health is really poor and I just can't mm -hmm. deal with this right now. I mean, it's, it's fair. You know, but we've all kind of found ourselves in the situation where you have this amazing tape. You know, she had the fantastic tape from her friend. Um, and the, really the only way that she wanted to tell the story was about this relationship. She wasn't going to go out and just find another person. So she just held on to this tape and she thought about this tape. It was tape she didn't want to let go. Um, and then there was a spark. So there was a third coast competition for like a short docs thing. Which is a fantastic spark. Hmm. It was the uh, 2007 Short Docs competitions, if anybody uh, remembers that. Ten years ago, it was their dollar stories, where participants had to uh, choose between an object, three objects that were found in a dollar store. There was a fem feisty feminist banter uh, printed, a mug with a feisty feminist banter printed on it, a four-pack of wooden mousetraps, uh, and an old-school um, bicycle bell. And I decided I'm going to use the bike bell and I'm going to turn this story into fiction using the real tape from my friend telling this tragic story. And I'm going to fictionalize the other friend. And it made sense in a way because they're never in real life going to be able to meet each other. And so the other person actually is kind of a fantasy, you know, they're never going to really know each other. And so it kind of felt right to have the other person feel like a ghost. So we wanted to play for you this piece that she created. It's called Unless We Showed Up uh, in Hazmat Suits. This is the very first speed I do. Uh, this is the very first speed I do. Lucy didn't have many friends growing up. This is the final speed I do. While other kids were running around, playing on their lawns, she was inside, clearing mucus out of her lungs. She has cystic fibrosis. Now Lucy lives in a tiny box of a house on the corner of two alleys in Philadelphia. Every day, while she's going through her morning routine, she hears this at the intersection outside her window. The girl who rides the powder blue bike looks like Pippi Longstocking. She's got red braids, freckles, sometimes even striped socks. Each time she passes, Lucy runs to the window. She wants to call out to the girl. She wants to grab her by the wrist and bring her inside for a hot cup of tea. She's the girl who has more in common with Lucy than anyone in the world. That's, that's really kind of the way it is. The girl doesn't know it, but Lucy is the person she chats with online every night. 
They met a few months ago on a message board for people with CF. We basically found each other through these posts that were about pregnancy. Lucy recognized the girl's braids in her picture right away. And, you know, picked up on the fact that we were both trying to conceive at the same time. Lucy and the bike girl tell each other everything. They talk about how their doctors have advised them not to have babies. They talk about their husbands coming to terms with the idea that they might wind up as single dads. They swap coughing techniques. She taught me this technique of the arms to really thrust the air out like... <laughs> Recently, the girl told Lucy she wished that they could be real best friends, that they could give each other pedicures and play Connect Four. Lucy had an urge to run down the street with nail polish, knock on the girl's door, and tell her they were neighbors. But it would be too dangerous. Online we have signatures, and hers says that she has bespatia. Bisapatia is a type of bacteria that isn't harmful to most of us, but it's different for people with CF. I would inhale some of these germs, and when you are diagnosed with having bisapatia in your lungs, your life expectancy is cut in half. When we both got pregnant within weeks of each other, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm never going to get to be able to see your kid. Like, that was just... That tore me up a bit, and I was like thinking about Fairmount Park, and I was like, oh, you know, we could stand like three feet apart, and I could make sure I'm upwind of her, and <laughs> I think that was might have even been in a dream. Then I realized, I'm like, yeah, this is not going to happen, unless we both showed up in like hazmat suits or something. Yay, applause for Hillary Frank. Yay, I love that piece. Um, so Hillary says the big lesson for her and what she thinks that the takeaway is for this is that fiction really is an opportunity to make your dream piece. Um, because a lot of times when you're doing documentary work, you know, you're thinking, well, if only I had this kind of tape or that kind of tape, maybe you're not able to get it. And for Hillary, she says, that's what happens here. And the great thing about this is that she also then resurrected this piece and turned it into a longer piece called Lucy and the Bike Girl, which you should definitely go listen to. It aired on The Truth in This American Life. Um, so as you're sitting here this morning, like think about the tape that that is like your favorite tape, or even sometimes there are moments that we have um, and the work that we're doing that just don't seem to fit into the story, but you like always remember that moment and and you know, couldn't use it in your piece, but you just save it. Like, think about how you could possibly use fiction to do something different and maybe even get at, like, a larger truth because I think the lesson here is that great tape doesn't have to die. It can be brought back from the dead. It can be zombified. So, all right. So Anne has another example that's in <laughs> inspiring a totally different kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so Andrea Salenzi... Uh, has this amazing podcast called Why Oh Why. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It's from the Panoply Network. Um, I like to call Andrea Salenzi the Larry David of podcasting because if you listen to it, she's this like heightened version of herself. Um, and for me, I love spending time like having Andrea in my ears. I find it comforting. But at the same time, um, it feels like I'm standing on a rug that she is about to pull out from under me because I don't know what's true or not true. And that's because she very specifically, like on the website in terms of the show description, she says she likes to blur the lines between memoir, documentary, and fiction. 
And Andrea says that she kind of creates that not stable um, environment on purpose. Yeah, I think my favorite listening experiences are when Mike Pesca says this thing. God, I wish I could stop quoting Mike Pesca. But Mike Pesca says this thing that like a great radio show is a mix of um, habit and surprise. So there's like a routine. You're like hanging out with your favorite buddies on your favorite podcast. But then occasionally it's going to surprise you. So I try to do that. And so the thing in Andrea's show that really keeps me on my toes is this guy named Randy. Um, And Randy is an asshole. Like, really is an asshole. Uh, According to Andrea, they met in a bar. Uh, He negged her into a friendship, said that she smelled like hay. Um, You can hear all about this encounter. It's in the episode called The Quiznos Guy. Um, And for some reason, Andrea finds him so intriguing that she keeps inviting him into her story and studios again and again and again. But the one thing that me and a lot of always people are asking is this one question. Okay, so is Randy real? Yeah, of course. I will always tell you that he's real. Right? Okay. So... Now, just talking about Randy can't do him justice, so I just want to play a little clip from an episode. Uh, it's called, uh, this is a piece from Randy's Mima Died, which won Sarah Awards last year. Um, and here's some background on this story. Uh, Randy has showed up in Andrea's studio high on speed, or Benny's, as he calls them. Uh, his grandmother has died, and Andrea's kind of letting him talk through the grief and through the drugs. Uh, and it turns out that his grandmother has left him uh, her farm, and Randy's idea is to build a water park to commemorate his Mima, uh, and then he's calling the water park Raging Effin' Insanity. I don't know much about drugs, but I googled speed and side effects. It turns out that in addition to making him irritable and hyper, it can also make someone highly detailed extra specific written in fancy lettering cursive lettering ss randy so for the adults there's gonna be a swim up pool which is the absolute bartenders are also going to be in bathing suits you want a flume is flipping the glasses like they did in that um, tom cruise movie born on the fourth of july that's where the huge wave pool is going to go you see where it says beach Mm -hmm. that's going to be an indoor beach and that's going to be called mini oc mini ocean city Beach has an A in it, just to... No lifeguards. There definitely won't be lifeguards. I'm going to train dogs who can swim and who can sense danger. When you see lifeguards... This is the only part of your plan I like. I mean, I think it'll never happen, but I do like the idea of a little dog lifeguard. Right, because when you see lifeguards, what do you think? You think danger, right? But it's not... No, I think person who's there to save your life. No, it's depressing. You just think like, oh, here's another guy flipping around a whistle with a white rope. You know when they do that? I hate when they do that. So it's... And they're always compl- they're always looking at their watches, and they're always sitting under their umbrella. No, so you'll a- have a fleet of little Portuguese water dogs. No, no, no. They'll be bigger because they're going to be out- – I'm assuming that there's going to be a lot of fatsos there, which you will find anywhere. So you cannot just have small dogs. It'll be big dogs, medium dogs, and small dogs. They will all be tra- trained to save lives. But Randy's family has other plans. So the other side wants to just leave it for a public park and picnics and things like that. They mm-hmm. want to sell it back to the state. And there's a real lefty Lou in the family, my cousin Becca, who's a real Democratic Debbie. (laughs) So 
goes so, on from there. And I've heard from a lot of people that they hate Randy uh-huh. and that they yes. hate the experience of not knowing what's going on. That that destabilizing feeling that you're talking about is really uncomfortable and and their least favorite part of YOY. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess for me, it's something that I enjoy because I, what Andrew was saying earlier, like finding surprising um, is something that I'm drawn to. And the other thing that for me makes Randy palatable is Andrea's like curiosity, her engagement with him, um, and how she kind of finds him delightful in her own way. So, I mean, I get it though. And Randy says some really horrible stuff, uh, which I'm gonna play (laughs) for right now. Um, So the other thing that Andrea does in terms of how she uh, includes her friend Randy in her show is that she will mix him in with other guests who... Who don't know that Randy's a... a Well, she will always tell us Randy is real. So, uh, and I have made a, uh, I've crossed my heart and made a promise to Andrea that I will not, that I will also say that Randy is also real. But let's just say, I'm trying to wink here, I'm not having a twitch, uh, that Andrea is deploying Randy in with the group of very, very, very real people um, (laughs) who, who don't know necessarily who Randy is. And he destabilizes things. So when she premiered on Panoply YOY, um, she had gotten a bunch of straight um, guys together in two studios in two cities to talk about dating. She gave them um, lots of drinks uh, and then had them talking about their dating philosophies. And she also included um, Randy, who I feel like in this clip, Randy kind of basically ups the misogyny uh, ante. So. People have been hooking up without apps forever. This is new shit. And he's not alone. You know, I have to be honest with you. I've been listening to this. I don't deal with any of this nonsense. I usually deal face to face. That's my friend Randy. Long-time listeners of the show might remember him. We have some history. You know, if I see someone in a bar, I'll go up to them and start talking to them. I'm not on any of these apps. Yes. Yeah, so what do you do? You just go up and introduce yourself. You go up and, this is what we call hollering. You just holler. <laughs> no, that's some sexist crap. Can, can you give some strategies to these other guys for holler? how you guys how do, do it? Randy Christopher, like, how do you walk up to the girl and actually talk to her? You act like a man. You, you see someone in a bar. Wow. Oh, man. And you go wow. up. Wow. He just what? castrated That's all of us. That will not fly in New York City. No, 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 no. But wait, wait, wait. Can I ask you a question? No, though? that's ridiculous. Can, it, what, can you, if, if, you don't, if you don't mind sharing, can you walk us through the last time that you, you don't have to name any names, but like how you did it, the last person that you walked up to like a man? Yeah, it was last weekend. I was at Club Secrets in Ocean City, Maryland. That not like far from our- <laughs> He was at the strip club. <laughs> <laughs> you drop some woods, you can holler at Ocean anybody. Whisper. It's not a strip club. Was she in a thong and some, some clear heels? <laughs> so as you can hear, Randy changes the tone of the conversation and what Andrea says, specifically in this one that was interesting, was that guys who she thought were kind of more on the, I don't know, a little bit like quieter side, didn't have as much bravado, like Randy kind of brought out this very much big 
bravado element in them. Uh, I also recommend listening to that. It's called Single Straight Guy Focus Group. Uh, and you can hear how Randy just kind of really changes the conversation. Um, but the thing, again, like I was saying earlier, the thing that actually works for me, even though Randy is a really just horrible person, is how much Andrea delights in their conversations and how she challenges him in specific ways. And I think that, too, you hear her delight in making this and using Randy. And so this, for Andrea, is like her big advice in terms of making fiction. Sometimes you just need to do the thing that entertains you. One of the biggest mistakes I hear all the time is someone trying to please some imaginary person who they imagine is just like the average of all listeners and making all their decisions based on what that imaginary person would like. And I think if you're not enjoying what you're making, then there's a problem. And so Andrea, as we were doing this interview, she actually decided that we should call Randy and get his advice. So Randy, what is your philosophy about audio fiction? My philosophy of audio fiction? Fiction. Um, like when people aren't just doing reporting on NPR or something. I know you don't like NPR. Like when people are making, I yeah. NPR. I, I, I consider NPR to be fiction, so I hate it if that's your question. Why are you asking me these questions? Anne says that this is being played in front of a big audience in Chicago right now. Chicago Hard Rock? It's the Third Coast International Audio Festival. So it's a bunch of like audio geeks who listen to our show. And what advice would you give to the people in the room right now about how they can make their audio more surprising and funny? You got to tell jokes. I mean, not not modern jokes, but joke jokes, you know, with, with the beginning, a middle, and an end. And I'm really good at that. And, you know, you can find these on the Internet. They have hundreds of jokes on the Internet if you want to go there. But I would not be afraid to be yourself, too. I mean, if you don't like something, like I don't like NPR, I don't like lifeguards, I don't like scented soap, just be honest about it. And don't try to hide behind some sort of veneer of uh, fakeness. Tell it like it is. I don't know. All right. So there you go. Takeaways keep people guessing, do what entertains you, and according to Randy, tell jokes, they are all over the internet. Um, now we're going to, we're gonna go into another piece uh, that also blurs the line between fiction and nonfiction, but it is in, in a much more serious yeah. way. Uh, so this switches gears a bit. Uh, in 1981, NPR aired this 90-minute program about the People's Temple cult in Guyana. Um, that's Jonestown. It's named after Father Jim Jones. After worried family members of cult members organized a visit, they brought some U.S. officials and uh, press, and the members of the cult killed the uh, U.S. congressman and some members of the press there. The whole thing quickly unraveled, and over 900 people in Jonestown died a mass suicide. They drank cyanide. This is drink the Kool-Aid. Um, that's what that refers to. So, so here's the thing about this NPR documentary and why we wanted to play it for you. It's hosted by longtime All Things Considered host Noah Adams, acting like a cult member and a surviving eyewitness. Can you imagine that happening on NPR today? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to know, how did this happen? 
And I, I talked to Noah Adams, I talked to Deb Amos, who was the producer, and they told me that they got the tapes from James Reston Jr., a writer and journalist who was working on a novel at the time when Jonestown happened. When Jonestown happened, I knew this was a story for me. I thought, you know, here's an actual heart of darkness that has, has taken place with a charismatic um, leader who you know, recedes into the jungle with his following, and then he goes progressively mad before their their eyes. So, so he hops a flight to Guyana, and he gets there a week after the massacre. And he he finds out that when the FBI arrived on the scene, they scooped up over 900 hours of recordings that had been made. Uh, they zipped it into a body bag, shipped it back to the U.S., and so he uses some family connections, eventually gets these... Uh, declassified and listens to them and he ends up with about 120 hours of recordings and he starts working on his book uh, his novel in reality he calls it so uh, on we go to the end of writing the book and at the very last moment um, I was listening to a tape recording of Jones at the very end where he was torturing one of his um, one of his followers, uh, I think, as I recall, the the follower was had been drugged up, and so Jones was posturing and tormenting this guy. And I I was taking these words down, and I thought, you know, the printed word just cannot capture the spirit of this particular scene. It goes through the ears and you have to feel it you have to hear it and so uh let's hear a little bit of father jim jones just a warning it's pretty it's really intense yeah and this is the actual documentary tape but don't ever say hate is your enemy love has practically caused me to just get you destroyed if i had hated a little more just a little more we would have had a little less trouble. Because I look at my faults analytically. Sure, you got love. Principle! But don't say, hate is my enemy. What did it say? What's that word? Hate is my enemy. I got to fight it day and night. And what else is the other the line? Love is the only weapon. Bullshit! Martin Luther King died with love. Kennedy died talking about something you couldn't even understand. Some kind of generalized love. And he never even backed it up. He shut down. Love is the only weapon with which I got to fight. I got a hell of a lot of weapons to fight. I got my claws. I got compasses. I got guns. I got dynamite. I got a hell of a lot to fight. I'll fight. I'll fight. I will fight. I will fight. I will fight. I will fight. So James Reston walks into NPR with a box of 120 hours of recordings like this and this batshit crazy idea. Let's have a fictional narrator. And they get Noah Adams, the All Things Considered host, to be that fictional narrator. Uh, and the idea is that he's gonna play this traumatized eyewitness. So let's hear another clip. This is Noah Adams' performance, beginning it. The relatives back home, now the enemy, now became despised. And at night, the people of Jonestown lined up in front of the pavilion, eager to get to the microphone to testify 
to tell Jim and the congregation the best story of what they would do to their families if they had the chance. Just tell us right quick, one line, what do you think should be done to your relative? I'd like to kill my so-called brother and um, Bill Aarons for the crap that both of them has, have caused over these years since they've left. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I think that Mr. Tupper should die and um, that um, I should... Um, Mr. Tupper. Mr. Tupper, this always kills me, this family. Mr. Tupper! He's always been Mr. Tupper. Everybody calls him Mr. Tupper. I don't want to know it. It's funny. I like it. Mr. Tupper, go ahead. I think that I should um, take a knife and cut Mr. Tupper all up real good. And, uh... Cut him up real good. And then make him look like, you know, um, cut him up and then put poison him and invite all, all my relatives over there and have him eat him and then I'll die. <laughs> You've been talking to Reb, that's what you've been doing. My mom is a damn fool. Hope I, I hope I knock the <laughs> f out of you. She... <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I put my life on the line to save you. See, my mom is a goddamn fool. I had to beat the f out of her. I dare, I dare her come out because I'll be the one that's, uh, I'm a shot her. Good. <laughs> My mama's a goddamn fool. So that tape I, is so haunting. Yeah, it's disturbing. Mm, I, yeah. I talked to Deb Amos, who was the, the producer of this, about the decision to use Noah in this fictional way. It just sounded like the right thing to do. And who was going to tell us it wasn't? Really, nobody to say you can't do that. I mean, part of it, you know, we had all been infected by the notions formulated at Sender Fries Berlin. Um, you know, Bells in Europe was a departure from standard documentary making. You know, we saw that they had done a, a documentary where they brought a dozen uh, motorcycles into a soundstage and recorded each of one of them starting for the opening of a documentary. You know, that, that was, it was a time of remarkable experimentation. Oh, this was just unheard of at NPR. We hired a musician to write um, some music, like transitions at the end of each, each section. I think that the listening experience was incredibly powerful. I mean, there's no denying that the tape from Jonestown is incredibly powerful. It's like, it's bonkers hot. Mm -hmm. um, but th the decision to use Noah Adams as this fictional narrator is a really strong choice. And does it make it more powerful? Um, I, I've listened to the whole piece. I actually think it does. Um, but let's listen to one last bit just of, just of his performance, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about that bit. In the dark, he crept back into the camp to get his passport. Across the way, near the pavilion, someone moved. It was father's nurse. She found Jim on his pedestal, surrounded by his now silent followers, 911 of them. 
He had swallowed a fistful of barbiturates, but he would not or could not take the poison. And there, in the faint light, Father saw the woman. He begged her to shoot him. She arranged his hands across his chest in a pious pose. She put a pillow under his head to make him comfortable. She shot him in the left temple, and then she flung the weapon away in disgust. So, um, we do want to tell you to channel 1981 NPR with a strong caveat. Mm. Um, there was a call-in show that happened after they aired this 90-minute documentary. It was a national call-in show hosted by Bill Moyers. And uh, I don't, they didn't know who was going to call in. Family members of the victims is who called in. Uh, the cult, ex-cult members called in. And um, so we have a clip of that. But let me just say something. One sure. of the, the, the final... Uh, the close of the program, which was most disturbing, was that which said uh, something that has only been said as speculation, and it purported it to represent it as fact, and that was that Annie, my sister, the nurse, shot Jones and then threw away the gun. That has never been proved. There, unless, you know, Stanley Clayton or one, someone has come forward, that was speculation which Skip Roberts made. Let me, let me ask Mr. Reston, let me ask Mr. Reston about that, uh, Rebecca Moore. What, what about that, Mr. Reston? Well, the final closing of this program is a reconstruction, and it is, it is said to be that, and it is based on the very best evidence that I know how to, to, to get, which is from Skip Roberts. So I think Skip Roberts is an eyewitness, but yeah. um, the the point here is, like, it's totally cool to do some off-roading. That's great. Uh, but when you do, make sure to map out the ethical implications and really think them through and think through why it is you've made the choices if you're going to deviate from truth. Now, this, this call-in show, it was supposed to be an hour. It went two hours. That's crazy. I mean, that's... That's also crazy because they broke the (laughs) broadcast clock for like a half hour, right? It's for like an hour. I mean, the the call-in show (laughs) is longer than the actual program. Um, But, uh, and I imagine the local stations were losing their minds. But um, the the thing that happens in this call-in show is that James Reston, point by point, is... Uh, defending all of his decisions. And what's amazing is that he's super well-sourced. I got this information from Huey Newton himself. I got this information from this person, this from this person. And he's very detailed about what his thinking was, but he's he's also on the defensive a bit. And, mm-hmm. and I imagine listening to that Colin show must have been totally trippy, uh, not unlike listening to Andrea and Randy, except about something a lot more serious. Mm-hmm. So the the pointer I have for everybody is like if you're going to deviate from facts and reality, expect that there will be confusion from the audience, and be dead clear about why you're doing it, uh, and think about the impact on real people involved. And if you're fictionalizing real people's voices, I mean, you want to be in relationship with those real people. If you're going to dig up your tape graveyard, make sure those folks are on board. Mm-hmm. Um, and consider giving them some power in helping to craft how they are portrayed. Mm. Okay. 
All right. <laughs> Palate cleanser. Uh, really? Kind not of. really. <laughs> All right. So, Here we go. Different thing, different maybe, thing. is a better way yes. of saying it. Uh-huh. Um, so this is a piece, giant spoiler. Has anyone heard this piece? Yes. Okay. A lot okay. of people have. So I'm not spoiling it for you guys, but for the rest of you, I'm totally going to give it away. I might feel a little bit better about doing that because Nick Vanderkolk has played this at, at Third Coast before. Um, but I do want to say there's no substitute for listening to the entire piece. The experience you're going to have now is just an experience so that we can talk about the piece, but you actually won't uh, feel empathy for the characters the way you do if you listen to the whole piece. Uh, but empathy is what we want to talk about, so okay. hit it. I think it's harder when things feel unsettled, but once people oh, sorry, are all stop, honest. Wait. Important knowledge to know first. It's about this guy, Dave Cat and uh, his two lovers. Uh, one is a Russian who will be referred to as either Alana or Lanka, and the other lover is a Japanese-born Brit, Shichan, who sometimes they call Shidori, just to keep things really Life confusing. isn't put. Okay, I'm gonna start that over. I think it's harder when things feel unsettled, but once people are all honest, yeah. life isn't perfect, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's not like I'm 100% happy all the time just because I'm married. At times I can feel a little bit jealous of you guys, you know. Mm-hmm. Maybe he feels jealous of us some of the time. He's not a woman and... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay though, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you're okay, it's fine. You were describing it as hierarchical polyamory? Yeah, that's... I had run across that term. She had actually seen it on her Tumblr dashboard. Uh, hierarchical polyamory is... It's basically when you have a relationship that incorporates more than two people, I guess, in our context. It was like Elena and Dave Cat and Shidore are all in love with each other. Elena understands that Shidore and Dave Cat are married, but they still all are able to enjoy each other's company. That's where the hierarchy comes in. Elena will always be my second. That was the whole reason of why... Elena agreed to stay with us. She understood that, yeah, there is a marriage involved. But the thing is, you know, she still wanted a friendship. She still wanted a relationship with someone who's male and someone who's female. She basically decided, that, oh, well, I guess I can be your mistress. If Shichan and I want to do something with someone that isn't each other, we could do it with Elena. And are you exclusive among the three of you, or does Laka go outside the really <laughs> um, the threesome, or like how does that work? Shichan is famous for flirting, but again, it's flirtation. It's not necessarily like pursuit. Lenka, for the most part, is just devoted to the two of us. So this is, if this is a two-personal question, you don't have to answer it, but, um, but do you have threesomes together, or how, like, how does that work? No. No, we don't. We never have threesome together, ever. Because um, the bed's too small. I'm just not clear on... The logistics of it, like who sleeps with who, like when, like well, how does that all work? Each of us sleeps with Dave Cat. Alternately, we yeah. not sleep together at the same time. And me and Sudore grab time together whenever we can. Mm-hmm. When Dave Cat is at work, mm-hmm. when Dave Cat is in the bath, <laughs> <laughs> he knows he's cool with it. He's not, he's, he doesn't mind us. And usually, I sleep with Dave Cat because. Um, my joints aren't as stiff as Sidore. Mm. See, that's the thing. It's, that's, it kind of works to our advantage, though, because I say she's the mistress because Elena is more built for sex, mm-hmm. whereas 
Chidore with her stiffer joints, although they have loosened over the past five years, she's more built for love. She has very, as you can see, loose joints. I mean, where you, you know, you, you lift her hand and it doesn't stay. I mean, you can barely like turn her hand, mm-hmm. her hand. Her hand. Yeah, sure. Her fingers are actually kind of broken at this point because the wires that they use in the fingers are not as strong as they could be. Mm-hmm. But because uh, they've all broken at like the base plate in her hand, right, which is right here. If you put her hand right here. But uh, I've always been intrigued by artifice. I remember distinctly being in second or third grade. My teacher, Miss Mahaffey, was standing at the blackboard writing whatever words in French. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, if she was a robot, what mechanisms would make her move her arm or her hand or her mouth or head, walk from the desk to the blackboard or whatever? I remember I was fascinated with that. It wasn't like a sexual attraction or anything. It was just like a fascination. So everyone's got it? The... Female voices are actresses for love and radio, and the dude has two sex robots. Um, here's the human again. Mm-hmm. Next clip. Oh, next clip. Sorry, I just, yeah, I get a little, what? Okay. They always say it's like, you know, if you're dating, you know, you get rejected. You just pick yourself up and move on. For me, it just takes time, because I'm thinking, okay, she's rejected me, why? Why has she rejected me? I, I think some people might hear you say this and think that, well, if it wasn't for this fear of rejection, then he would just have, like... An organic or Organic relationships, you know? Yeah. Is that true, or, like, what do you think? <sighs> I wouldn't say it's entirely false. So maybe I suck as a human, but I would have a really hard time listening to a story about a guy with two sex robots and feeling like, I really want to know about this guy. Um, although yeah. it's been fun making this talk with Anne because I'm w- like watching the disgust on her face as I play clips. Um, yeah, I don't have a poker face at all. Um, but so. I, I talked to Nick Vanderkolk, who made it, and uh, about where this where this story came from. Okay. This at first came on my radar um, from um, the the Atlantic uh, had featured him. And um, and a friend of mine uh, emailed me the article and was like, "Oh, this guy might be a good love and radio subject." And um, I immediately sort of like re- recoiled because um, I I generally I'm um, I, I generally go after stories that um, I have sort of like mixed feelings about, and I didn't really have any mixed feelings. And I feel like if Nick Vanderkolk has mixed feelings it's like whoa um yeah but i mean the interesting thing for me i i I was going to mention this kind of when you were talking about like my face and all these things and my feelings about this as i listened to this is that like i i yeah i always think that the fiction part of this helps maybe me feel a little bit more of an understanding of him and his world and possibly makes me feel a little bit more like empathy or just kind of opens it up a little bit to me kind of accepting it and not just totally turning it off. Although at the same time, it also makes me just want to turn it off. It's like, I feel like the same thing. I feel like two different things by the same 
Yeah, I mean, for, for, for me, the longer piece, the experience of listening to the longer piece, um, you, it does allow you to kind of see this guy through the eyes of his robot loves. Even though you're a little bit suspicious of the whole thing, you're like, that's weird. The Russian moves here not yeah. knowing this couple and moves in with them. Like, this is weird. I mean, and they find some really weird stories at Love and Radio. Um, and you also have a little bit, uh, as a Love and Radio listener, you expect that something's going to shift under you, that there's mm. going to be some kind of reveal or reversal or something in a story but I think they go into who Dave Cat is and how he, why he got this way and his relationship with his parents and I wouldn't want to know any of that I wouldn't have any feeling for him without having done this it, mm. I, I find it really works and that I I do uh yeah I find him warmer and more interesting because of the fiction mm. um you know the the other the other point that that I thought was interesting when I talked to Nick uh, was that basically he had been pitched the story, he, he read it, it turned him off, um, but there was something that he thought was interesting. And I know we've all had the experience of like having an interesting idea and then the tape you get doesn't actually support if there's like a problem with the voice. Um, so he says... Uh, right, yeah, I'll play the tape. Yep. I, I don't know what it was. I mean, I... I any any idea that sort of comes in I've heard I just like put into this Google Doc and um, so even though I was sort of like I think I half read the article but I was just so turned off by it that um, that I didn't really do anything with it but at least like wasn't going to throw it out outright so it just ended up residing on this Google Doc for like two years. So this, this is just a work habit tip. If you've got a list of story ideas and there's a bunch of things that are like languishing down on the bottom of your story list and that they have some problem like this, um, think about the ways in which fictional tools can help you unstall that idea. Um, trawl around there at the on the bottom of the list and see what's down there that you you might be able to to play with and, and resurrect the dead. Um, so our next piece, Anne yeah, and I... Yeah, the final piece we want to talk about is something... It's our, it's our favorite narrative. Um, yeah, it's our favorite just strictly narrative fiction yeah, piece that's out there, which is more... Tra- it's, the, it's in the more traditional realm of audio fiction. So yeah, so we been, have all, a- all actors in this. Yeah, and so what we've been doing is, is playing all of this tape from, you know, documentary that, you know, blurs the line and kind of mixes the 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 worlds that we do along with the fiction world. And this one is just incredible to listen to. It is just pure fiction. Yeah, we think there, we think there are some lessons here to inspire us, though, and that's why we're playing it. Yeah. So let me set it up. The um, It's raunchy. It's oh, yeah. really raunchy. Yes. Uh, are there children in the room? Are there? Okay, good. Okay. We're good. Let's do this. Uh, the All main right. character is a football player, uh, He's coming to terms with his attraction to men. He's a professional football player, and uh, there's been a big win on the football field, and so the team's gone to a strip club together. Come on, stay. No, I think I'm going to call tonight. Are you sure? She took my hand and laid it down small of her back. <laughs> Trust me, you're uh, making it hard, but I still got to go. She was making it hard, but I lied. I didn't have to go. I wanted to. I wasn't feeling the same. I had other plans.
I felt like I was back in high school blocking my number and shit. I mean, I wanted to talk to him, but I couldn't get my shit together about what to say. And the night was turned out to be a bust. I poured myself some hand and got comfortable. Hey, someone order a meat lovers? Yeah, come on in. Okay, cool. What do you want it? Just put it on the table right there. You got it, man. Oh, what the f man? Is that your Yeah, it's the extra meat you ordered. Yeah, I watch porn. What dude doesn't? So the thing, I love fruit because I, I love the narration. Yeah. And that clip too, I love the sound design in terms of that the porn is like super over winky it's sound al It's design. almost like, Paul, the flood! Yeah. Like it's really yes. overacted, but then you uh -huh. hear the distance between the overacting and his natural narration, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a really nice... There's like nice layers in it. Yeah, and there's a lot that's happening like with this. So like right now, I think I, I don't know if they're doing a season three. They have season two out. Yeah. Um, so, so this was made by the same yeah. team that made um, Issa Rae's Awkward Black Girl and mm -hmm. now the Fantastic Insecure on HBO. Yeah. Um, and and I talked to. Um, Benoni Tego, who's one of the writers and producers, it initially started as an idea for um, a web series, but they were having a hard time coming up with the money to do it, and it occurred to him that they could just do it in audio. Um, and before you hear him, I've played a lot of really shitty phone recordings. <laughs> His is especially shitty, so I apologize. Yeah, he was on the road. He's, yeah, he was, yeah, he was traveling, so um, okay. this is the best we could, could do with the terrible cell connection and my bad recording. So. <laughs> okay. And I thought about turning this through into a podcast. And at the time, I didn't really know that um, narrative podcast existed. I had never heard of it. So to be honest, when I came up with the idea of fruit, I thought that I was creating something for the first time ever. Um, it wasn't until after I started going down the path that people were like, oh, this is what they used to do in the 50s, like the old radio shows. And I was like, oh, this actually has existed before. And they were like, yeah, this definitely has existed before. It was being naive that actually really got off the ground. I mean, I, I think it's awesome because it's the, the, their approach, they just did it exactly like they would do a TV show. And I think that's probably why I like it so much. Like the dialogue is actually sounds like TV dialogue. And um, yeah, let's play the clip about, about process here. Okay. The writing process was one thing because to be quite honest, we wrote through the same way that we would write a visual project. There's actually no difference at all. Obviously, there's an idea, and from the idea, we put together a writer's room, and we allow our writers to sit together and basically craft the story episode by episode so we know where we start and we know where we're going to end. So we had four writers on this project, and we gave them weeks to be able to beat out what the season would be and why this would work, but that other thing wouldn't work. There was a lot of revisions. You know, there was three or four producers on this project, so we were all giving notes. The only difference came with, was with the sound engineer, and I interviewed a lot of people. I mean, the sound designer that we had, he had never 
done a project like this, but he had done sound design for commercials, video games, and things like that. So I'm struck by a few things. One, oh my God, that's a lot of people. It's yeah. four writers, four producers, a sound designer, um, and nobody's doing anything they've ever done before. But they're all building on skills that they have, and um, I think you hear that that like creative stretch that they're all figuring it out and that they're trying something new and that they're all throwing in on it. I think you hear that in the quality of the, of the show. And I, sh I recommend you hear the whole series. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I like about it is kind of what Benoni was saying before is that like part of the reason got fruit got made was because I was naive. And I always try to find that like in myself, I feel like my best work has come about. And some of the best work I hear is when it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to make it anyway. And I just think that it needs to be out there in the world. And fruit needed to be out there in the world. And I was like, all right, it doesn't matter if we've never done this before. Let's just like make it happen and, and just kind of make it without being like, how is one supposed to do this? Like, let's just do it. Um, um, I'm just curious. Um, so when I heard the piece grow up, Ivory, mm. um, I, re I really liked it, but I remember feeling kind of pissed off, yeah. like be betrayed, because um, I was used to what I th thought of as real stories from Love and Radio. So I'm just mm. curious, like your thoughts about that. And um, I think that's I a very real danger. And I, yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of why we were talking a little bit in uh, in both Father Cares and and the Y O Y. Like I think some of Andrea's audience is is does like, not really enjoy. does not like yeah really don't like Randy. I mean, it's kind of like what's the contract that you've made with your audience? How clear are you? You know, like This American Life has kind of changed how uh, like what the audience expects from them. You know, and I feel like you know certain like if you have one thing and then you try something else you might get into trouble I, let, let me let thing. me i'm remembering what nick said when i when i asked him about that and one of the things he said was that he tries if there's going to be a reveal like that he wants to make it clear he said in that piece it was really fun watching like the penny would drop in different places but that he had like you know he'd made these little easter eggs leading up to it but then he wanted to make sure that there was a very clear moment when it's like no dude has sex robots um, so that the audience wouldn't be confused um, and I think part of that is because uh, he has ha he has suffered some criticism for not being clear with the audience and using like directing and you know off sort of off mic directing something as the way of indicating this isn't this is a, as fiction. Um, so I think one of the things that he was trying to do in that piece was just to make sure that that reversal was something everybody knew and that you couldn't be confused by that. But I've heard a bunch of people have that response to the piece and feel like, ugh, I, how can I trust anything if you might do that to me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, about that, that same piece, I was wondering about the women's voices. Like, did, I felt really bad for the guy with the sex robots, mm -hmm. like because the yeah. the women's voices, like they created a whole other level of commentary on his relationships. And do you know? Did he like, comment yeah. about that? Or? Yeah. So so first of all, um, Nick reached out to Dave Cat through Shidori's Twitter, and uh, and then that's how they got in touch. 
And then he said to him after he talked to him, um, what if we sort of take your fantasy and hire actresses to play these parts and I'll interview you about what what your fantasy is and then we'll have actresses kind of build on that story. And Dave Cat was into it, thought it was a great idea. And um, and that's how, yeah, that's how they put you from such a look on your face. What, tell me what you're thinking. I don't know. It was just so disturbing. It was like, oh, sorry. For me, it was it was so disturbing. I was like, oh my god, like that's taking them into that realm of humanity. And then, it, if it's his fantasy, then I I felt a little bit more comfortable about it. If all it was the, a producer's fantasy, I'd be like, yeah, no, all oh the my god. all the facts of the fantasy comes from Dave from the Kat. guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dave Cat yeah. says the story of how they met, and here's what she thinks about this, and here's what she thinks about this, and then the <laughs> actresses just built on that made it conversational, but really stuck to the facts of yeah. Dave Katz's fantasy. <laughs> but it's interesting, All I think, right. in that way that they were sort of guided by truth and to, and to who that truth was most important, maybe. Um, that gets a, a, a couple of like inter, inter, um, interweaving questions, which is like the reporting of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was part of what was so interesting about Father Cares to me, too, is that it was like a reported fictional account. Do you know how they framed that at the top of the piece? Was, it, was that like explicitly stated to people? Uh, no, the reporting wasn't. I mean, that's super interesting. Um, and I wonder if they, if they had said that, whether your reaction would be different to it. The, what they do say is that the r- recordings are real and that and that you won't hear the last, the suicide, but it will be described. We're gonna do a reconstruction where it's described, but we're not gonna uh-huh. hear any, any sound from that. They did all hear the recording of it. Um, but they, you know, they don't talk about how deeply reported it was. And that's, frankly, when I listened to the call-in show, I was like, oh my God, this is deeply reported. Right. Um, like, I wonder if that, in terms of managing the audience's expectations, too, mm-hmm. it, like, if, some of that queasiness. I mean, maybe yeah. you want the queasiness. So, but. so there was one exchange in the um, in the post show call-in show. Uh, they had brought into the room this guy Ishmael Reed, and a poet and MacArthur genius in San Francisco, who talked about a docudrama that was on TV around the same time. That was this docudrama where they had fictionalized two characters that were um, uh, folks that students at Kent State who were egging on the protesters and telling them to attack the National Guard. And those are two characters that, as far as anyone knows, are not based in reality, totally fabricated, and basically justifies the actions of the National Guard. And he was like, this is really dangerous. Why are you, do- why are you fictionalizing anything? Mm. Um, it's a super interesting exchange. And Reston basically is like, I'm not fictionalizing anything important. I have sources, I have sources. Even though this perspective and I can't, I'm not actually sure about the truth. I mean, there are places where he's kind of defensive and pulls back a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so don't just listen to the piece, listen to the Colin show. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It, this is uh, such a fascinating opportunity to learn in a different way using mm-hmm. fiction. And yet, um, for me as a jazz broadcaster, it allows me to add a different palette to how I can revive history, which is so traditionally done and not done with any political or any socioeconomic context. So I'm excited about that. But in 
a world where fake news is such <laughs> a buzz term, yep. I worry about yeah. um, the credibility of how the educational opportunity is valued or not valued at all. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> a lot of thoughts on that. Uh -huh. I mean, I think that sort of like guided by truth um, is important and that if you're gonna fictionalize, you need to know why you're fictionalizing and what understand the agenda that's driving that fictionalization. Um, I also think like, I mean, this could, would never air on NPR today and I think mostly like no, no. Adams afterwards, he uh, there's a house sound piece about this where where he talks to Rob Rosenthal who says, and, and no. Adams is saying I'm sitting at home like getting drunk listening to the broadcast thinking this was not having a good time, and uh, and he wonders now if he should have done that at all. Mm. Um, so he has very mixed feelings about it. I think, and I th I think the idea of having like your news person. So like at a small station, you might want to grab the newsreader to do some fiction. You might want to think twice about that. It might be better to grab a producer to play a role like that. And to be very clear, this is fiction. This is yeah. a fictional reconstruction. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the thing um, for me. I mean, just think about how much you're winking to your audience or kind of like dropping like those hints and letting them know. And and I mean, also the thing for me when it came to starting the Sarah Awards is like I was seeing all of this, like these lines being blurred and I kind of wanted a space for people to be like, you know what, this is fiction. And I wanted people to like admit it. Like, no, you know what, this is fiction. Like, let's put this here. Yeah, let's, not, let's not put this on All Things Considered or, you know, yeah. on your weekend show or something. Let's right. I mean, put this in a different space. I feel like they can't, well, it just depends. Like it just, you really have to think about like, how your relationship with your audience and how much are they gonna get. And sometimes people, um, I don't know, they maybe misjudge their, their audience and their ability to either understand the wink or want to understand the wink or, yeah. Uh, um, else? Uh, hello. Hi. So I've been thinking as far as like understanding your audience and what are your thoughts on like where the audience is in the world as far as like what's going on in the news and mm -hmm. so like the first story of um, no the Jonestown story right yeah. um, I I thought about it the response to it as like like a war of the worlds type thing where everybody mm -hmm. thought it was real like the people started to call in and right. they you know they kind of like got it misconstrued but, but it was real it and, was and so the people who called they in didn't were realize people it was fictionalized no the people yeah. who called in had been really affected and I think what we don't know is whether people knew that the call-in show was real yeah but yeah and then so like the thing, the proximity to the time, right? Like the news, it was like mm -hmm. it just happened, right? And like War of the Worlds, like war was happening for real. Like they thought right. Germans were coming to kill them, right? So like they all left. So I just was thinking about like the proximity to like what's happening in real life and people's response to that. And then also with, um, damn, I lost the rest of it, but yeah. Right. Okay. So your thoughts about yeah, yeah. the proximity so my, to real life. I mean, that's the thing, you know, so so as much as, like, I love YOY and I love Andrea and I love the fact that, like, I don't know that sometimes what I'm listening to is true or not, but sometimes there have been times where I'm like, I, I don't know if it's true and I want to know and I think it might be important for me to know. 
And so that's just something like it's it's a, it's a, like it's a caution that you should think about, like because that's the thing with the Colin show is like okay, like all right, so we've said like here's this like fictional like it's like real tape fictionalized narrator, so we've got like construction, but then then you then you leave the audience wondering like is this Colin show real? Like so once you start questioning the reality mm-hmm. of anything, it's like going down the that like fake news thing, like what is truth, you know? And like kind of once you start doing that, you just yeah, there's a little bit of like caution. And while you were talking, that, and that's all about context. I mean, I yeah. think that's all about context. Yeah. I also that's remember the other thing, which was like with yeah. um, the sex robot story. Mm. Um, I think we had like a little visceral moment back here mm. <laughs> because it here. it's super close to like the Me Too, and like we've been talking about sexual harassment and mm. telling people like to stop trying to flex our joints, you know, mm. <laughs> on the street. Yeah. Like yeah. so, it, I. Yeah. You should listen to the whole piece because I think that's actually like Dave Cat, uh, uh, the reason he has robots kind of relates to that, that it's not, human relationships are, are, are messy and he's particularly someone who does not want to impose himself on anyone and so he's more comfortable imposing himself on sex robots. Mm-hmm. So we have one, yeah, last question. Uh, so the Andrea Salenzi uh, piece makes me think more along the lines of like Hunter S. Thompson, gonzo journalism. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about uh, your thoughts on how uh, this being audio or radio does, because when you're reading it, is it a different thing um, than when it's audio? Or, I mean, I think that especially yeah, it, when he was covering the campaign in 72 and like the rumors that he himself was starting about some of the candidates that weren't true about like Ed Muskie being on drugs or whatever, yeah. it seemed to have like created this sort of turmoil in the culture. And so, I don't know, I just wonder your, your thoughts, print versus audio and this kind of tra- strategy. Sure. I mean, the main thing that comes to mind is that the people who you might be fooling their actual voices would be a part of something if you if you do that, and so, um, you know, there's an, there might be anonymity in a print article that there wouldn't be an audio. Mm-hmm. That's the first thought I All right, I think that's it. Thank, Thank you. Hi. So, <clears throat> I've been playing around with this idea with me and my sound designers that when we make the occasional documentary store that is reality-based, full-on true story and we build soundscapes and sound scenes that require sound design, we've been toying around with the idea of instead of categorically reflecting reality in a polished way, to more or less represent the idea of the memory mm-hmm. in the way the sound design goes. And I wonder if I'm being a little too weird about it, or right. if that's just a way to think about how to approach, you know, imagine sound design, like the car engine turning off, stepping out of the car, and that line between being too literal, mm-hmm. but the need to be literal to push forward an emotional value of the story. Yeah, I mean, um, one of my favorite uh, transom pieces, uh, it's an oldie book goodies by Walter Murch. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but he talks about this idea of the spectrum of design and sound effects that goes kind of from the literal to the emotional and kind of everything in between. I mean, for me, I love the idea, like I think one of the 
beautiful things about sound is that you do not need a lot of it to like convey an emotion or get an idea across, you know, and also just play with the idea of um, how to do things that are a little bit more contextual and not so literal. I don't know, I, I really like that. So, um, I mean, I'm also married to an experimental composer and I go to drone concerts. So I go to the other extreme of things, but um, like we are at this time, NPR, late 70s, early 80s. You yeah, know? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of conventions in sound design. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there, there is a lot of literal use of sound that is like an imaginary landscape where uh, it's just helping you picture the scene, but you're, the, no audience would be confused to think that this actually happened. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's a pretty clear thing that you're, is kind of what you're talking about, um, and and that we've we've been playing around in that in that zone um, for a while. I think that there's uh, you know yeah it definitely deepens deepens things, but it also can be like there are times where you use that and it's not surprising. It's not helping deepen the scene. It's like a sort of knee jerk like okay now let's add some sound design and see if it makes things richer. Mm -hmm. So it can be overused. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hi, thanks. It was Hi. wonderful. Um, I am a fiction writer and an audio um, pod podcast maker. Um, I've never married the two. Um, but I just wanted to ask you about your advice um, to do with the contract that you essentially have with the audience. So at what point do you break the contract and what are the consequences of that? Because if you enter in thinking it's a non-fiction piece, and then there's this great twist. What happens over time to our, the way we believe or don't believe? So, so who's in the room is a regular love and radio listener? Mm. Would you say that that twist is part of the contract you have with love and radio? Like, I, mm. I think if you're a listener to that show, you almost expect the twist. And I, I don't think... I think they've acclimated the audience over time to really want that surprise and not feel betrayed by it. But I did talk to people <coughs> who listened to that piece and were like super betrayed by the, the twist. So it's a danger. And I think you do have to think about, you know, why you would confuse the audience or mislead the audience or have a reveal, like what that's offering you and what the potential cost might be. Hi. Um, Hello. So I am really excited to try and see coming from like an audio fiction, like producer background and like theater thing to go and make nonfiction stuff. And there's like this momentum currently to like do that. And so I think it's really interesting that at the same time that's now happening, this is occurring, the Brave and Bold thing. So it's like this big thing that's making a very um, permeable membrane between the two things. Um, but I, in talking to some people about like work in the past that I've really loved or things that I've made, I've noticed that there's this thing with people who've only made nonfiction to really look down on fiction and then to start to then look down on me and then I can see the conversation shift or end. Mm -hmm. And it can be very abrupt if somebody didn't know that the thing that I sent them was fiction, if that wasn't clear to them. And they're like, oh, I love that this actually happened. This is really cool. And the second I, I say that, and I, I think that it would have been obvious from me sending it to them um, that it was, um, 
I'm really excited by all this transfer, but I like that that kind of like sneering at, at fiction makers is still a thing, and like I don't know how to deal with it because um, I haven't really had a whole lot of conversations with other radio makers until very recently. So like, how have you guys dealt with that? With people being like, "Oh, that's nice." Yeah. Um, I mean. Part of it, I think, like, when you're sending it to people, I think just, I guess, you know, try and make it clear that this is fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, there's that. Yeah. Um, I mean, the interesting thing in my mind is that sometimes I understand the sneering just because there's a lot of... There's just a lot of kind of conventional, cliched work out there. And I think that and part of what people are doing, I mean, it's just hard. Like, like for me, people feel like they have to be in different kinds of camps, right? Like, I'm nonfiction. I'm, and I think both sides actually do that, you know, fiction and fi fiction as well. And so for me, what I love is trying to think about um, how we can cross over, build bridges, you know, because I yeah, think it I, makes both more interesting. And I hope then make that sneering and kind of looking down upon or feeling like you only have to do one kind of thing. I mean, I, I think um, I have kind of two thoughts. One, one is like, uh, if you're passionate about your work, it's about finding your audience, mm -hmm. right? And maybe your audience is a very specific audience. Maybe it's it's not you know, the people who are sneering at you, right? So, um, mm. and then I, I also think uh, there's, there is this sense that fiction is, um, and I, I, that it's like less rigorous and intellectual and um, it's easy. Um, you know, I was a theater major and I sort of feel like Oh yeah, I, I you know I, I think I know what you're talking about from from the way and then you you know you're at you're working in a production environment where everyone's laboring at two in the morning to mount a show and it's like it's there's parts of it that are actually pretty rigorous and well researched and it just depends. I don't yeah. know. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the keep thing for me is and that keep playing like, across the lines. Is that yeah. like, uh, and I think I, did, I, I, I was practicing this, and I didn't get to see Brian Reed's talk. But for me, um, you know, it's through great literature, great fiction, that I've always found um, the deepest understanding of what it means to be me or a person, or just come to a more general understanding about this crazy world that we are living in. And those are the kinds of things that I think that fiction can and, and should do. So, as well as be entertaining and make me want to binge watch it, like eight I mean, episodes I think of it's the Golden a, Girls. I do think it's a real question that like a, a lot of us are finding ourselves in this moment where what we're putting in our earbuds is largely documentary and not mm -hmm. fiction. And so there's a like, why is that? If, if what I'm watching in movie theaters and on TV is mostly fiction, mm -hmm. why is it that what I'm putting in my earbuds is nonfiction? And it, it's kind of what led us to, to lean heavy into the documentary stuff here because I think that the believability and the way that you can kind of um, become emotionally connected to a character is easier in documentary than it is in performance-based fiction. It's hard. 
Mickey? You've both been like, you've been surveying the fiction world and also like uh, fielding a lot, encouraging people to make a lot of fiction. And I'm curious after hearing probably like hundreds now of attempts at audio fiction, mm -hmm. uh, what kinds of like trends that you'd, you'd um, like to see sort of go by the wayside, um, or yeah, we we're happy had to a talk thing. about. Yeah, that. we're super happy to talk about that. <laughs> thanks um, for your question. Yeah, thanks. Um, I am top of the list is overacting. 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 Yeah. Overacting. Um, yeah, overacting. Uh, kind of sound effects that just make you feel like I like the cheesy porn sound effect because like that's supposed to be like this artificial cheesy like porn wink. world you know it's a super wink at it you know but there's there's way that characters just don't feel like they're in the world um, that they're supposed to be in uh, thinking that a celebrity voice uh, is gonna fix everything um, and it can make things like more like great you can have De Niro in your audio fiction podcast but are you gonna really think of anybody else except for De Niro like if he's starring in your your podcast I mean it'll probably be great for numbers but uh, there's, there's some trade-offs to weigh there yeah you know so yeah um, what else I I like science fiction I'm a little tired of it that that's kind of the only thing like for me fiction I want to hear like a great comedy series I want to hear a great it's um, another reason why I love fruit because I yeah. think it's one of those well-developed, oh. long-run series that isn't science fiction. It's not science There's fiction. It's not crime, you yeah, know, or fantasy. or fantasy or things like that. Although, you know, there's a lot of great stuff that's out there. So, those are those are one. Um, Michelle, you had a question for um, nonfiction producers who have never dipped their toe in this area, what's like one thing that you recommend we unlearn in order to try this? <laughs> oh my gosh. Unlearn. Unlearn. Well, just that you can't do it, I guess. I mean, just that like, you know, I mean, if you've been doing it for years, I mean, this is the thing for me, whenever I try and take on like a new project or try and do something new, or even just like in the work that I'm doing, I try to find, I mean, I think Benoni says it, like there's something that's really great about being naive. And so I try to find that, even if I have like a large knowledge base, I try to find that feeling again where I just feel like I can do anything and I'm not concerned about this rule or that rule or the audience and things like that. And so I think that's the hardest part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think channel um, Andrew Salenzi and like try to amuse yourself, try and make mm -hmm. something that's really delightful to you. And I think it's not always the case when you're making like a news piece that your goal is to delight yourself. Right. So, um, that might might be the thing. Mm -hmm. Anything else in the back? Martha. In the back. Martha. So, um, so Ellen and I've had this conversation, I think, a little bit in our room. But um, you know, uh, film directors will tell you that the three things that make a movie are the script, the script, and the script. Yeah. And you guys aren't really talking about that. And to me, that is the absolute heart and soul of fiction, that mm -hmm. the, it comes from the writing. And, and how is audio different from that? 
Well, I mean, it's true. Like, you can't, like, like with De Niro, like, you couldn't, you know, hire an actor, and if you have bad writing, it's not gonna, it's not gonna fix anything. But I also think, too, even good writing, like, like with a film, you could still have good writing, but if, like, the lighting is awful, like, I, I don't necessarily think that it only comes down to one thing. I think writing is the most important, but all of the other elements, too, have a, have a, could ruin it, like, bad sound design, bad acting. I have, I have students who make great have written amazing radio pieces. And, you know, they're just dealing with, like, their fellow Sarah Lawrence acting students. And it's heartbreaking, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, so every element, I think, actually really can't... Like, good writing is the fundamental part of it, but so is good acting and so is good sound design. I, I think the, the thing that I see is that um, taking a script, adding acting and sound effects uh, is sort of the model of that... 1930s radio drama and um, and process wise you know most pieces that documentary folks are making come you start with an idea you start to gather actualities then you structure it and then you write the script isn't any less important in that context I mean the script's still really important mm. um, but you have some other fodder to work with and so for me um, thinking about the writing and the script first is inhibiting and I think that's why I just wanted to encourage people to think about starting in a different starting place. Because if all you're looking at is like, you know, the script and then adding actors and adding sound effects, you end up with something that sounds mostly like a table read um, or a radio play. And, and I, as a listener, I have a hard time really falling into those stories. It's sort of the rare exception where I find something that's produced in that style that really works for me. And so... Uh, Fruit is definitely one of those. There are others. I mean, I, I think mm. if like the first season of Homecoming is uh, is super interesting. Um, I don't know. We can and, we and could the name thing on. And for me too is that I, I talk about this idea is that you know like our ears have evolved. So the heart the 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 thing that is the most difficult with fiction is that people have to buy into the world and. Um, as soon as they know, as soon as they just think that they're listening to fiction or, or don't forget, like, as soon as they, they just are always reminded they're, they're listening to a fictional piece, um, you lose them. And, and, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, like, you didn't have, people weren't going out into the world, like, with the microphones and doing, you know, gathering sound in the way out in the field. So everything was in the studio, so people felt like, they, they bought into that world, you know, of a studio world because that's what their ears were accustomed to listening to for nonfiction. And so we have to think about like what the nonfiction, like what is it that makes nonfiction that we're listening to believable and bring those elements into the fiction world to help us like make people forget that they're listening to fiction. So I think I think we're at the end of our time. Right, to make it real. Hi, Thanks thank for coming. Thanks guys.